with that, we're going to jump into the Word of God. Last week, we focused our time on these kingdom parables, the weeds and the seeds, the leaven and the treasure and the pearls and the nets. We covered a lot of ground last week, but as I said, uh, I think all of them work together to make a few major points. We have to look out for corruption, not just in the world, but corruption that arises even within the church people that try to add to or take away from the gospel. It was Jesus that was that man and that merchant that came into the world to save us, that we are his treasure and his pearl, which is an amazing thing. Also that God will judge everything when the time comes, and we will either be judged by our own status as righteous, which is not going to go well for us, or we will be judged by his status as righteous as his free gift to us. And the gospel story is going to continue on. And this part of the gospel that we are in today, that we're going to study, is in all of the synoptic gospels. The story appears in Mark 8, sorry, Matthew 8, Mark 4 and 5, and Luke 8. And we're going to focus mainly on Mark's telling of these stories. And so if you have a Bible or device, you can open up to Mark chapter 4. Remember, one of the last things we talked about last week is that Jesus asked his disciples, do you really understand what I'm saying? And they're like, yeah. But they didn't. And we're still trying to understand it. And today we're going to focus on a couple stories that talk about storms and struggles. Stories from the gospel where people find themselves in an impossible situations, and they have to trust God because they cannot take care of it on their own. And so if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, very famous story that I'm sure a lot of you have heard, but it's so rich with meaning and with uh, God's graciousness. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, so remember last week, he's preaching to the group to the hundreds, if not thousands of people. And then this picks up right after that. On that day when evening had come, he said, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were there with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and he said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There's a famous painting that maybe you've seen from Rembrandt of his uh, version of that story. Gives you kind of an idea of, in his mind at least, how violent this storm had come. And you can kind of see Jesus, the glowing figure towards the back of the boat. At this point of Jesus' public ministry, he is extremely popular. There are hundreds, like I said, if not thousands of people that are gathering around him to hear his teaching and to 
See the incredible miraculous things that he's doing. He's doing things and he's saying things that people have never seen or heard before. And so they are flocking to him. This is why we see him do something we talked about last week where he kind of pushes out from the shoreline a little bit, gets on the boat and preaches from the boat. Like I said, I like to picture him just kind of sitting there on the bow of the boat preaching, and it creates a natural amphitheater so that more people can hear him. But he's just trying to get a little bit of space because the crowds are, are literally like crushing in around him. And so he's preaching, and on this particular day, it sounds like he's been preaching to the crowds all afternoon. And as evening sets, he's tired. Remember, he is fully God, but he's also fully man, and he gets weary, and he's tired after an entire day of preaching, and so he needs some rest. I don't know about you guys, but Sunday is nap day for me. Like, I do this, and I don't know why I can't explain it to you. Preaching is the most tiring thing I've ever done, and I played high school football. Like, it's worse than daily doubles, right? I love it, but when I go home, I am exhausted, and so nap time, and so Jesus preaches, you guys are lucky, I only preach like 30 minutes, Jesus preaches for like six hours. I'm sure you'd rather hear Jesus preach for six hours, but, but he preaches like all afternoon and then he's exhausted and so he says, let's push out and let's go to the other side. He knows that he's not going to be able to just walk ashore and then just kind of be like, all right, thanks, have a great day. No, they're, they're going to crash in upon him. So his only way kind of out of the situation is to Boat away from the crowds. There's a line in this story, just as a side note, because I've read this story I don't know how many times, and there's this line in the story that blew me away because I've somehow never noticed it before. I was reading the story this week. When it says, and there were other boats with him. Did you notice that? He can't even get away from people if he boats away. There's still other boats that are like, oh, we'll come too, right? There's just people with him everywhere. I'd never noticed that. He can't even float away in peace. As they go out into the sea, a great windstorm rises up. Now, people that have spent time in Israel tell us that these storms are not abnormal on the Sea of Galilee. They can arise quickly and seemingly out of nowhere. It has to do with the geography of the Sea of Galilee, how it sits almost 700 feet below sea level. And the winds come in through the mountains and they, and they can just create these incredibly violent storms. The Mediterranean cool air comes in, it all works together and it creates these gales. And if those were following Jesus in those other boats, if they had just abandoned their boats or turned back the other way, they could have died. But those who stuck close to Jesus were saved. That could be its own sermon all by itself, right? I'm not going to go down that route right now. But those who stayed close to Jesus were safe. This whole time that this is going on, you got to understand like kind of the humor of this story. This is going on. The storm arises, and Jesus is in the back of the boat asleep. Remember, he's tired. He's been preaching for hours, and he's like on a pillow just snoozing. And the storm comes and everything's going on. He's been preaching all day and the disciples are quickly not pleased that he has chosen now as nap time. 
And they cry out, don't you even care that we're about to die? Something that's interesting, the wind doesn't wake up Jesus. The storm doesn't wake up Jesus. The waves don't wake up Jesus. In the story, the only time he wakes up is when his followers cry out to him. He's unfazed by all those other things because he knows he's good. He told his disciples, we're going to the other side. He didn't say, we're going to the underneath. He knows they're good, but when his followers cry out to him, he wakes up. He hears them. He answers them. Have you ever thought about what a ridiculous thing this would be to say to Jesus? Don't you even care that we're about to die? Now, they may not totally understand it yet, but this is literally the the man, the God-man who will lay down his life, as we talked about in communion, for them, to save them, to protect them, to give them eternal life. And they're whining. Don't you care? Like, this reminds me, I love my kids, but this reminds me of teenagers so much. Anybody have a teenager that has ever been like, you don't even care about me. Boy, I gave my whole life for you. Do you know how many cool cars I could have if you weren't here? <laughs> right? <You> just <laughs> they accuse Jesus of not caring about them. That's a mighty strong accusation to make to somebody who is devoting his entire life to caring for them and to, write, to raising them up. Jesus, in his endless grace and graciousness, doesn't, and I like to think about this, imagine he just gets fed up with them, he jumps out of the boat and just walks on water away. Forget you guys, because <laughs> he can, right? But he doesn't. He gets up and maybe wipes a little bit of sleep from his eye. He's like, what are you guys worried about? He says, peace, be still. Literally in the language is peace be muzzled. Or some Bible commentators have said he's literally in a way just saying, hey, shut up to the weather. Do you catch that? Jesus is saying to the weather, shut up. I love that. I love that idea. And instantly the wind ceases, the weather obeys, and he says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? These men have watched Jesus do things that are beyond human understanding. They've watched him heal the sick. They've watched him cast out demons. They've even watched him raise the dead, and yet they're still shocked that he can make a storm go away. The disciples were even more afraid after that. Catch that. They say, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? They were more afraid when the storm was calm than they were when they were in the middle of the storm. That's wild. Because it's something that they cannot possibly understand. It's beyond their comprehension. Jesus wasn't bothered by the storm, but notice he does seem to be bothered by the lack of faith that his followers have in him. The storm is nothing. But he says, have you so little faith? Have I, not, have I not shown you that you can trust me? 
he told them that they were crossing to the other side. And they feared the circumstance that they were in more than they trusted him in the midst of that circumstance. When we get caught up in the storms and the struggles, how do we react? What is our attitude in the midst of the storm? I'm going to tell you something that I really believe is true, and somebody might not like this. It is the storm and the struggle in our lives that create depth in us. It is the storm and the struggle that make us more capable, more skilled, more useful for the kingdom of God, and even more useful for the people in our lives that we love. I don't mean to sound like I'm casting dispersions on people, but I've, I've met a few people, not a lot, I've met a few people in my life that really haven't endured much hardship at all. And often, they're the most shallow of people. And I don't mean shallow like all they care about is money and things. I mean shallow like there's just no depth of character to them. They've never had to endure much. And so when any little thing comes up, they might be completely blown sideways by it. It's not always their fault. Sometimes they just haven't been through those things. They've led a pretty easily charmed life, and that's okay. But it doesn't create this deep, abiding depth in them. It doesn't create thoughtful wisdom that comes from the struggles that they've been through. And I know... Most of us might say, I would rather have an easy life and be a little less deep. But the truth is that we are most useful to the kingdom of God when we have endured those things and when we turn around and use them for the glory of God and for other people. And so it's very difficult. Most of us don't want to say, I'm thankful for the storms and the struggles. It's incredibly difficult to do that. But I promise you, those things that you have gone through, those storms and struggles that Jesus has taken you through to the other side, have made you a deeper, more fully character-filled human being. And God is going to use it. The last thing in this story that blows me away is how Jesus is in control of everything throughout all of this. Even in the winds and the seas, they listen to his authority. There's no storm or struggle in our lives that take Jesus by surprise. Do you understand that? There's nothing that you're ever going to face that God's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. He knows. He is sovereign over all. There isn't a storm or struggle that is greater than his love and his protection There's not one situation you will find yourself in that he is not the almighty God over. And I know that there are times that we have a hard time remembering that in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the struggle. There are times when we need to, listen, I know you're not all preachers, but there are times when we all need to preach to ourselves. Do you ever do that? Do you just preach to yourself? There are times we need to do that and say, Self, God's got this. Even though I can't possibly understand it, I don't get how I'm going to get to the other side because all I can see is the storm and then Jesus can stand up and just be like, shut up. And we get to the other side. 
We have to choose to trust the promises of God even when the storms and struggles seem to be pressing in all around us. Here's the thing. Listen, so many people are worried about the boat going down. Think about the world that we live in right now. Everyone is freaking out about the boat is sinking. It's going down. You can see the storm, and it's going down. We look at this world and the changes that are taking place. We look at all the stuff that's going on all over the world with wars and with sin running rampant. Whatever causes you personally anxiety and stress or whatever's going on just in your own personal life, we look at all of that, and sometimes we want to cry out to God, don't you even care that we are perishing? Don't you even care that the boat is going down, Jesus? But we forget the same things that the disciples did. Jesus is in the boat with us, and he cares about us. And his power is far greater than the storms and the struggles. Our situations in this world may change. Things may look differently, but ultimately, if you have followed Jesus into his boat, he will get you to the other side. It may not look exactly like you thought it would look, but he didn't say, We're going under. He said, we're going over. And he will get us to the other side. And then he gets to the other side. And remember, he's tired. He's weary. He was just asleep. Such a deep sleep that the storm won't wake him up. He needs rest. But he gets to the other side. And guess what he doesn't get to do? Rest. Let's look at the next little story here. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. They come to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jesus says to his disciples as they get to the other side, sorry, Jesus and his disciples get to the other side. They've just been through this whole situation out in the water, and I'm pretty sure the disciples 
might just be happy to see dry land. Like it might be one of those movie moments where they start kissing the ground, right? It's like dry land, right? They're so happy. But immediately, as Mark always says, he says tons of times in his book, immediately this man comes up who is demonized, not just with one unclean spirit, but with many. And the man is described as this man who lives among the tombs, right? He's living in the cemeteries. He's running around the cemetery, we find out later, naked. He's nude, he's running around, he's crazy, people try to shackle him. He would just break free of any attempt to restrain him. He would cry out and wail and cut himself with stones, mutilating himself. Can you imagine living in a neighborhood where this dude's one of your neighbors? Right? There's people that live, and this guy is just like around. My buddy James, who's here today, we, were, we had lunch the other day, and we were talking about how in both of our towns where you grew up, there was like that guy that everybody knows in town. I don't know if you had that where you grew up, but there was like, like in my town, it was a guy who was mentally ill, and he just walked everywhere, and people knew him. They would buy him lunch. They would take care of him, but he, he was kind of crazy, and he would say off-the-wall things, and James was saying he had a guy like that in his town, and I think every small town has like that guy. Well, imagine if you're that guy is also naked and cutting himself and screaming all the time. That's what they're dealing with here. Now imagine he can break shackles. Even if you try to chain him up, he's like, ah, no, like you can't hold me. And then you realize like, oh, there's demons in this guy, right? They're just kind of dealing with him there. And he, this man runs up. He's known as the Gerasian demoniac. And he says to Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. I want you to see something here. This man, or really the demons in this man, has good theology. He knows who Jesus is. He calls Jesus the son of the most high God. It's possible to have good theological ideas, but not actually know Jesus or be submitted to him to just have the mental acuity of who he is. But he also says, what have you to do with me? He's saying, I'm, I'm not your follower, but I know who you are. Jesus is calling the unclean spirits to come out of the man, but then Jesus says, what's your name? And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I don't know if he uses that term literally, probably not, but if he does, a Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers. So we're not probably talking about a couple demons. This man has maybe hundreds, thousands of demons residing in him. He begs Jesus not to cast him out of the country. Luke 8 tells us the same story, and in his telling, the demons beg him not to be sent to the abyss, right? Not to be just completely gotten rid of. And over on the hillside, there's this large herd of pigs feeding. And the demons ask to be sent to the pig and pigs. And Jesus grants the demons permission to go into the pigs. And as soon as they enter the pigs, the pigs run down the steep embankment and into the sea where they all drown. That part of the story is odd to me. Why would Jesus allow 
perfectly good bacon to go to waste. <laughs> There's so much good breakfast sausage. Anyways, but no, why would, why would Jesus listen to the cry of demons and give them permission to do that? And I don't know the answer to that. We aren't told exactly, but, but here's an idea. Maybe Jesus wants the people that are watching all of this to see how destructive the demonic forces really are. He doesn't want to just get rid of them. He wants the people to see, see, this man who was created in the image of God had all these demons, and he was, he was all kinds of messed up, but he could, kind of, he could kind of push it off a little bit. But as soon as they go into these pigs, the pigs just immediately commit suicide. Just destruction is immediate. And maybe Jesus wants the people to see that. Maybe he wants to see that there's nothing good that comes from dealing with these sorts of things. After this, the last chunk we're going to read today, verse 14, says, The herdsmen, the ones who were shepherding the pigs, which I didn't even know pigs had shepherds. That seems like an awesome job, too, if you get free bacon. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they, beg, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So these men that were herding the pigs, so to speak, they run back to town and they tell everybody what they've just seen. Then they see the man that they all know was demon-possessed, the man that they knew was wailing and crying and cutting, and now they see him there, and he's got clothes on, and he's in his right mind, and they, in seeing him changed, they become more afraid. Those who watched the whole thing happen began to describe the situation to the people, and instead of being grateful for what Jesus has done, they beg him to leave. Isn't that wild? Jesus does this miraculous, miraculous work he frees a man from demonic oppression. He frees this area from having a wild man possessed, running around screaming and cutting himself. But instead of giving Jesus praise, they beg him to leave because they are freaked out by the whole thing. Just like the disciples were more afraid of the calm than they were afraid of the storm, these people are more afraid of a healed man than they are a crazy demoniac because it's beyond their comprehension. They were accustomed, listen, they were accustomed to dealing with an insane, demon-possessed, nude man running around crying, wailing, cutting. That they could live with. That had become normal. The world around them had become normalized to them. But having Jesus, 
a savior that comes with all authority, that they can't handle. That they begin to beg him to leave. And as Jesus gets into the boat to leave, the man who is possessed comes and says, can I, can I go with you? He begs him, can I go with you? And Jesus says, no. He says, it's time for you to go and tell people how much the Lord has done for you. Here's another thing about this chapter that blows my mind, this story. There are three requests made of Jesus. And you could almost say prayers, right? Because talking to Jesus is prayer. Three prayers are made. And the first one are the demons. And they say, can we go to the pigs? And Jesus says, yes. He answers in the affirmative to the demons. And then the townsfolk ask him to leave. And he says, yes. He answers in the affirmative to people that are asking a selfish and terrible thing. But then when the healed man comes and makes a request, and it's an honorable request, I just want to be with you. Jesus says no to that request. The other two, he says yes. This one he says no. This is going back a few weeks for us, but I want you to remember Jesus always answers prayers. It may not be the answer that we want at the time. It may not be an answer that makes sense to us, but the Lord knows what is best for each of us. He knows what will build his kingdom and spread the gospel. And the, he knows what will spread it to the, to the most people that need to hear it. And he tells this man no to what feels like a very noble request. I just want to be with you, Jesus. I want to follow you. But he says, no, it is time for you to go out and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. You could make an argument that this man who five minutes ago or an hour ago was possessed with a legion of demons now becomes the first missionary sent out by Jesus. He says, no, you can't come with me. You need to go tell everybody what the Lord has done for you. And I love this because the man doesn't just go home. Notice that. Jesus says, go tell your friends. And then it tells us, he not only goes and tells his friends, he goes and tells everyone in the Decapolis, which is a Greek term for the ten cities. He starts traveling all over the ten Greek cities in that area, telling everybody what the Lord has done for him. And this story represents the call on all of our lives. Right? It doesn't matter who you are. This guy did not go to seminary. He just came out of the cemetery. And he knows, all he knows, is that the Lord just changed his entire life and set him free. And that's all that he needed to know to go and share Jesus with people. And it's all you need to know to share Jesus with people. I know, like I said, most of you are not preachers. But I hope there's at least one message that you can preach to anybody. And I hope that message is how much the Lord has done for you. It's your testimony. Nobody can argue with your testimony. That's the great thing about a testimony. Nobody can be like, no, Jesus didn't save you. No, 
You're not better than you used to be. They can try, but you're like, no, that's my story. You have a message, and your message is just, what has the Lord done for you? Can you do that? Maybe you're shy, and getting up in front of people is literally more scary to you than dying. But can you have one-on-one conversations with people and say, this is what the Lord has done for me? That's how this guy goes and starts to change his world. He just tells people the story of what happened to him. If you're a follower of Jesus today, I hope you can do that. I hope you can just tell people your story. If you can't, we got some work to do. Give me a call. Let's work it out. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, I pray that you will soon be and that you too will have this amazing story that you can share with people just to let them know, I was, I was lost, and now I'm found. I had no purpose, and now God has given me a mission. I didn't know what I was doing, and God saved me. Despite the fact that I was still in my sin, he still loved me enough to lay down his life for me. These are your stories. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to be an apologetics professor. You don't have to do anything. It's great if you are. Some people are called to that. But all of us are called to just go tell your friends what the Lord has done for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for these two amazing stories that you have given us in your word and all three of the synoptic gospels. They are incredibly important stories and famous stories and yet we can still glean so much I'm just constantly amazed that I can read some of these scriptures and see things that I've never noticed before you're so good to just make revelation for us in your word I pray today that all of us that know you would be able to just tell people our story that we'd have one message that we can preach. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. God, give us boldness. Give us courage to do that even when it's uncomfortable. Lord, give us divine appointments like you had with this Gerasian demoniac. You were just, looks like you're just trying to get away and rest, and yet there was a divine appointment for this man to change his entire life, and you were there help us to have those appointments and to be courageous and bold when we have those opportunities. Lord, thank you for a packed house of people that love you and desire you and want to grow in you and grow in community. I pray that you would help us to do that. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.